have you ever had SIBO? Do you think you might have SIBO? Or are you the one out of every two people who have gotten SIBO only to get it again? Whether you are one of the above or just a curious listener trying to make sense of all the things that are gut and information out there, then today's episode is just for you. I've had several clients now that I've worked with who've been checked for SIBO, had SIBO, been worked with to get rid of their SIBO prior to them showing up and working with me, which as a hint and a reminder means they weren't feeling their best. They weren't feeling good. So when they started working with me, I started following the patterns of what were people missing, what what was being done, what was not being done with these clients of mine prior to working with me. And I have consistently found two factors that are impacting these clients' health. And there are also two factors that the health practitioners they worked with prior to me did not check for. And as a reminder, these health practitioners vary everything from doctors, integrative doctors, functional doctors, integrative nutrition all sorts of stuff. So other clients who we worked with who have had SIBO were suspicious that they had SIBO, had all the signs of SIBO, or knew that they had it again. All of them have healed from SIBO completely, and they no longer are required to be on things like the low FODMAP diet or any other restricted diet to keep their gut clean and keep themselves feeling healthy. So if you want to know what the two most common reasons that I am seeing SIBO recur in our clients and you want to know some of the science and anatomy behind them, you are in the right episode. Welcome to the Better Belly Podcast, where we find freedom from food restrictions, we increase energy in our lives, and we begin to feel more healthy and vibrant than ever by finding the root causes of our health problems. My name is Allison Jordan. I'm a marathon runner, functional medicine, health coach, certified craniosacral therapist, gut health nerd, lover of Jesus, and owner of Better Belly Therapies, a clinic based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that works with both virtual and local clients to help them achieve the best health of their life. I am here to walk with you on your journey to a better belly and a better life. We're going to go beyond popping a probiotic and just checking out our poop. In this show, we are going to go deep into gut transformation strategies that last for your entire life. If you are ready to feel your best, get ready to roll. You are in the right place. And just as a reminder, this information is not meant to diagnose, manage, or treat disease. Always consult with your own health practitioner before you make any changes to your health. All right, everyone. So this episode actually goes out to a phone call that I had with a, a like a sales or like a helpline. And when I was talking with them about my business, because it was it was uh, and you know a service that we use for our business, and and uh, the the sales help guy on the other side goes, um, oh, this is so interesting. My family's super interested into this, and my son's got SIBO and all this stuff. And I was like, you know, we don't have a SIBO episode. 
And that's genuinely how this episode came about. So um, my sales help guy, if you're listening to this episode, uh, I told you I'd give you a shout out. I'm giving you a shout out. Thanks for helping me out. So there, this coming back to this. So a couple years ago, I was more than a couple years ago. Y'all, I'm old now. Uh, I was writing a paper on IBS for my education, actually for my massage therapy education, because I was really interested in, um, dude, how do we help IBS? What's going on? Who gets it? Why? What do we know about it? Turns out there's (laughs) kind of a frustrating amount that we don't know, or it's just a and 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 I feel so much more knowledgeable about it after writing the the essay and the you know it was a twenty page research paper and one of the things I came across though was just a lot of there's a really high correlation between people getting IBS and people getting SIBO and so I didn't really include too much information on SIBO but one thing I remember reading and just was like my mind was blown and this was back in 2016 or 17 and and I still think about it and talk about it that there's a 50% recurrence rate in SIBO and I actually double checked before recording this podcast um, just any other research papers that I could find to you know was that percentage accurate am I up to date Um, I did find some places saying it's 40% recurrence. I found some other places saying 60%. It really varied. And so um, I'm going to stick with my 50% because it was between the 40 and the 60. So like I said, if if you come across a different or not, like I said, but but in case you come across a different number for some reason, it's just because the data varies. But we're going to roll with 50%. It's also a super even number. And the question is why? What's going on there? And and I actually, even when I was writing my IBS paper, kind of came across some of this information early on. And and it has informed me as I've as we've done craniosacral therapy and visceral manipulation and added on functional lab testing with our clients. And we've now worked with clients who've had SIBO or been checked for it or are suspicious that they have it, kind of the whole gamut of things. I mean, SIBO just has all really horrible symptoms. I mean, and I always feel like it's IBS on steroids in some ways that the bloating's usually worse and the gas is usually worse. And um, I mean, you just feel miserable and nothing feels good. And so if you're reading along and many of our clients, if you're kind of one of these people, if you're, I was one of these people, you're like trying to self-diagnose, you, you're looking up candida, you're looking up SIBO, you're looking up anything that could possibly, you know, you could take back to your doctor or your health practitioner and say, is this me? Um, you might think you have SIBO. And so um, it's a big topic. It's a big question that my clients have is, do I have this thing, this infamous thing? It's so hard to get rid of. It's actually easier to get rid of in my experience um, than we think. And and there's a lot of interesting research and I'm not going to cover all the alternate forms of SIBO that there is out there right now. If you've done any research on this, it gets messy fast as in like there's different types of bacteria the SIBO could be like, is it uh, methane producing? Is it, you know, what type of bacteria is, has, what specific bacteria has overgrown? And then there's also something new called CIFO, um, S-I-F-O, and this is small intestine fungal overgrowth. We're not really covering all the details and nuances because they actually all fall under this similar umbrella uh, of these two things that I think are huge and important and people are consistently missing when we're seeing these recurrences. And so 
Number one, it is a weak or dysfunctional peristalsis. And if you've been listening to this episode for this to this podcast for a really long time, you've definitely heard me say peristalsis before. If you've read our book, Stop Stomach Pain, I also talk about that and we'll leave a link in the show notes if you want to see that. You can get it in print or digital form. And um but peristalsis is this um, muscular coordinated movement of the gut that starts in your esophagus and goes down all the way to your colon and your anus where you where it pushes food along, which means that like if you were in space, you don't need gravity to digest. You could be upside down and digest. It actually might be a little bit less comfortable. But once you kind of get past the stage of the esophagus and the stomach, you actually you're probably not going to throw up most anything you eat, even if you're upside down. And that's because of peristalsis. And so your whole digestive tract, I mean, almost top to bottom, has this uh, motor skill that is is automatic. It should be automatic. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to tell your body. It's not like, hey, bicep, please move. Um, it just happens automatically. It happens through a variety of and this has been a huge topic of, of research for people. Well, how does peristalsis happen? Because we know what what's when it's when it's dysfunctional, it's bad. You know, it's either too mobile and you get diarrhea and everything pushes through too fast and in, it can be very painful or there can be like cramping or you're getting you're missing nutrients because it's going through too fast. That's usually not the problem. You even if you get diarrhea, you probably don't have fast peristalsis. Usually we're dealing with slow peristalsis. And so researchers and doctors are like, well, what the heck controls this thing and why is it getting slow in some people? And so there's a variety of factors, including your nervous system. Um, so, you know, are you in fight and flight? Are you in rest and digest? Do you have any nerves that are impinged? Your enteric nervous system, your serotonin levels in your gut, um, just all sorts of stuff. By the way, serotonin, super interesting. If you're like, what? Serotonin? That's a hot topic word to me. Um, maybe because you're on a SSRI or you have mood instability or whatever it is, Um serotonin's involved in all this. And so weaker dysfunctional peristalsis is is a thing. And um, with our clients, I, I asked them, I'm like, has anybody, you know, talked to you about peristalsis? <laughs> has anybody, any of your health practitioners you've worked with, whatever, whoever they were, doctor, nutritionist, whatever, have they talked with you about your peristalsis and how, you know, all the things that go into it, like thyroid gets into your peristalsis. If you're, if you have low functioning thyroid or any type of thyroid dysfunction, you, you're a, we know you're more likely to get SIBO and then re get SIBO. Um, but you also, you're literally the (laughs) motility, the motor coordination, the, the speed of your whole body has slowed down. Um, you also, if you have low thyroid problems, um, whether that's T3 or whatever, you're more likely to have a correlating liver congestion. And if you're, and that's a, we've talked about liver congestion before. It's not a diagnosis, y'all. You can go check out our episode, the gut sinus connection, the gut skin connection. I talk a lot about liver there in both of those episodes. Um, but if that's happening, you're not converting your thyroid really well. And this gets into a hairiness. It's not even actually that hairy, but we're going to have a whole podcast episode regarding thyroid. So, but it's like, you know, we get someone who comes in, they have SIBO. I'm like, well, has anyone checked your thyroid? <laughs> um, oh, okay, no. Has anybody checked your liver? Oh, okay, no. Um, craniosacral 
restrictions in your craniosacral system, which is the brain, the spinal cord, the meninges, your 22 cranial bones, like any of them. So car accidents, concussions. We have a whole podcast episode on this. Like it's not... And we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. I don't remember the exact episode number. It's early on. It's probably episode five or six. Um, and it's two, two therapies for IBS that you probably haven't heard of. And I talk about craniosacral therapy and visceral manipulation. And so if you have any craniosacral restrictions, physical restrictions, mind you, this is not psychological, which can be a factor when we're talking about the nervous system, psychological being some type of trauma or stress or whatever it is, um, physical restrictions, they're actual damage to tissue, just like, you know, a getting cut on your fingers. It's a physical phenomena. And and so damaging your, your nervous system, is, it's a real thing. And it could happen from falling on your tailbone and banging your head and, and getting a car accident and getting a concussion or getting a sports injury, falling off a horse. Like there's just a million ways getting an epidural. And this is stuff that we have we mentioned on our podcast, and I'm actually creating a quiz for right now. We're going to have on our website so you can just even do like a dude, how many craniosacral restrictions do I possibly have? Do I need craniosacral therapy for my gut? That's going to be up shortly, um, actually by the new year. And so um, we're also going to have, um, but also visceral restrictions can also affect peristalsis because um, not only is your nervous system sending signals to your gut to say, hey, it's time to move. And it, remember, it's all automated, like breathing's automated, heartbeat's automated. You don't have to think about these things. Um, until they don't work. (laughs) And then unfortunately, you can't force them to work. You have to understand how do they want to be talked to and why are they not working? So nervous system restrictions, organ restrictions. Um, So you've had abdominal surgery of any kind, so cesarean, appendix removal, gallbladder removal. You've had um, any type of car accidents, falling on tailbone again, like, like falls, impacts. So like, you know, someone... You've played volleyball and you used to fall on your on your abdomen all the time as you're kind of diving for the ball or you um, played soccer and people would kind of run into you, not because that's the type of sport it is, but you know, you're all at moving at high speed and trying to kick something and, and you kind of run into each other. You've played football or whatever it is, like there's just a lot of stuff. It's like, great, I skied. I'm not anti-sports. Um, I did gymnastics, but we have to realize like when we fall, it's not just, oh, I bruised something or my muscles achy. Your entire organ system gets jostled just like you in a car accident get jostled. And when you in the car accident get jostled, your organs also get jostled. And they're in these like seatbelts, which is their ligaments. And those can get tight and messed up and cranky. (laughs) And so if you have any visceral restrictions, then the organs like, well, I'm supposed to move left to right, but my right side's all jacked up. So now I can only move left. (laughs) We're like, now I'm 50% as effective, even if your nervous system's sending lovely signals and saying, okay, stomach, time to turn right, (laughs) time to turn left. Um, this is not quite how the body talks to itself, but I hope it kind of gives you a visual. You can have someone sending a signal and they're kind of like, but I'm chained to the wall. <laughs> and so you need a visceral manipulation to release that to get a full healthy peristalsis. We see this with our constipation clients, with our um, SIBO clients, with with our pelvic pain clients, our low back pain clients. It can manifest in a variety of ways. Um 
And so really want to encourage y'all do not like visceral manipulation and craniosacral therapy. They're not like fluffy, like I'm just, well, I guess I have some extra money lying around. So I'll go get a luxury craniosacral therapy or something. It's, it's not luxury on the level of like, it's good for you, but doesn't like, it's more like mental and, and it's like all in your head. No, it's actually physically good for you and you want those released. Um, so we help our clients who have SIBO to find someone to evaluate them to say, is a physical restriction in your craniosacral system around your nervous system essentially, or in around your organs impeding you? Um, and then uh, lastly, we really see with uh, weak or dysfunctional peristalsis that you can have a hyped up nervous system. And this might re- realize this is actually a huge one. And I'm when I say this, I mean, you want to work with a health practitioner who's going to evaluate the three major types of stress we go through, which are physical, psychological and biochemical. And I'm going to kind of slow down physical Physical stress, running a marathon. It could be good stuff, by the way, guys. This isn't all like, I don't know, just doom and gloom. It's living life. It's doing fun things, being pregnant, then giving birth. That's a physical trauma, Um, but it was good. You chose it. Um, Car accidents, again, fit into there. Um, Biochemical stressors, hormone are like hormone imbalance, parasites, um, toxins of whether it's in the air or in your water or, um, you know, heavy metals. I've had so many clients this week, by the way, that when I reviewed their um, HTMA, which is a test, a functional lab test where we look at minerals and heavy metals. um, And I've had so many people with high mercury this week. It's so weird. Um, It's not necessarily weird. It's like it happens. It's just a lot of mercury this week for some reason. Um, And, you know, poor sleep because of a kid or because you're you were a college student and you either chose to stay up late or you had to because of the intensity of your studies and exams and and papers. And, you know, maybe it's financial stress, moving, marriage, divorce, pregnancy. I already said that. Um, But we have physical, which is anything happening to your physical body, um, psychological, which is more of that classic when someone says stress, they're like, oh, I'm stressed. Um. And, you know, that's more of the things that happen to us mentally, emotionally, toxic relationships. I already said this, but financial stress totally fits into that. Happy things that happen to us, like I said, marriage, moving, etc. Divorce falls into that. Loss of a loved one. Those are all psychological stressors. And then thirdly, biochemical. And so we want to make sure that if you're working with someone and you're like, wow, I'm not feeling better. Well, have they, gosh, usually the big thing for our clients is they've already tried counseling and they've tried all the psychological stuff. Um, They've They've maybe kind of worked a little bit on physical stuff because they've gone to a PT. They usually have never had craniosacral therapy and visceral manipulation. But then lastly, they're not, they're, no one's looking f- deeply, fully, completely into their biochemical situation. And so you can throw an atomic bomb and kill off SIBO. You can use herbs and kill off SIBO. But if you don't find the source of that peristalsis problem, that the SIBO is technically what, we, what we're finding is it's bacteria from the colon making its way into the small intestine. That's why it's SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So it's basically like this garbage that's like backing up into your system. It's going the wrong direction. Why? We need to know what's going down at the ileocecal junction, which is the junction from your small intestine to your large intestine. We need to know what's going on at the cecum, at the appendix, at your right ovary if you are a lady, because most ladies have a 
uh, ligament from their right ovary to their appendix. It's called the ligament of Clayette or the appendiculo-ovarian ligament. If that thing's really tight, it's really puts a lot of stress on the ileocecal valve. And I find that our clients tend to, if they've heard of anything about like the importance of peristalsis, they might know they've been told by a functional doctor or a acupuncturist is actually probably the most common thing. And we had, I had one person say that their chiropractor told them this, that their ileocecal valve was dysfunctional or frozen or slow. Um, different words are used. And, and I was like, well, yeah, you're right. But also they had no idea how to check your ligament of clayette or your, um, the three ligaments that are around your cecum, which is the base of your um, large intestine right where the small intestine joins. Like, did they check any of these things? And not because they don't care. They just didn't know. That's fine. Everybody has an expertise in health. So you really, like, one thing can make a big difference, but it does take searching and it does take consideration of how many of these factors are going on. Is it thyroid? Is it stress? Is it, you know, hyped up nervous system? Uh, Even if you are feeling good today, maybe it's 20 or 30 or 40 years of a hyped up nervous system. That's going to take time to heal. But what can you do to help yourself in the meantime so you don't keep getting SIBO? Um, So considering all those things um, for just number one, peristalsis. Weak or dysfunctional peristalsis is huge. And when we help our clients make sure that those are, that that is working working as good as we can get it, as quick as we can get it, um, A, their like bloating goes down, their constipation significantly improves, their just sense of ease and digesting improves, usually their mood improves because uh, they're detoxifying better and they're not all backed up and miserable in their belly um, because we want everything to be going through at an appropriate rate. Um, this also does connect with other problems like gastroparesis. Um, I'd say is a big one that I've that I've seen and just general GI problems. Acid reflux um, can be a bit another big one. Difficulty swallowing. This is all kind of in the peristalsis, visceral restriction, cranial restriction realm. Uh, so that's just something to consider. And number two uh, thing, big thing, because um, there's only two, right? Number one, I hope you guys, I hope this is a super memorable episode. Number one, peristalsis, say it with me, peristalsis. Uh, number two, low stomach acid and low bile production. And I've kind of jammed those two together because they both have to do with digesting and how well we're digesting food. Um, stomach acid's the first thing that other than our own spit, which actually does have a digestive quality, but it only deals with carbs, really. Um, Stomach acid is the first thing that really starts to deal with protein and fat. And same with bile. Bile is the number two thing uh, if you... And then pancreatic enzymes would be number three. But why stomach acid and bile production? Um, and what's going on? And, and why why do people with SIBO and especially recurring SIBO tend to have problems here? All right. So I'm going to break it down first with stomach acid. Stomach acid. You've heard me talk about if you've been listening to this podcast um, because it's so integral to uh, acid reflux. So any of our acid reflux episodes, which I think we have like three or four at this point, um, I will have my assistant link a couple of them. We have things like uh, the magic power of zinc and and how to heal your acid reflux. We had another one recently um, on where oh just a couple weeks ago. I'm totally blinking on its name. But we have 
we're starting to rack them up where we're talking about stomach acid and we're talking about acid reflux. And I'm not going to get into it. So if you like in depth right now, it has its own podcast episodes and you can go down to our show notes and find the link there. But you want to uh, consider if you have low stomach acid, you're not breaking down food well like significantly impaired. We need it. Like you can't just say I'm going to take an antiacid and it's not going to affect me. It's going to affect you. And actually the most common cause of acid reflux is not high stomach acid, it's low stomach acid. So if you have low stomach acid and then you make it even lower using an antiacid or an acid reducer. Um, and so I'm thinking like Tums, those are more like temporary or something like Prevacid, where you're going to be taking it every day to like really keep that sucker down, Any t- like proton pump inhibitors, all that stuff, uh, beta blockers, that's going to really lower and most likely you already had low stomach acid actually and that's just actually statistically. Statistically, more people have low stomach acid than high stomach acid at this point in time. And so if you have low stomach acid, you're not breaking down your food. It gets into your small intestine. Um, It hopefully hits some bile and some pancreatic enzymes um, in the first little chunk of your small intestine. It keeps floating along, but it's not broken down. So by the time it hits your, your bacteria in your small intestine and then in your large intestine, it is not digested enough for them. And your bacteria will either have to overcompensate and they have to overeat and it actually slows down your peristalsis. Fun fact, because your peristalsis is like, whoa, 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 there's a lot going on. The bacteria are actually sending signals to the gut wall to say, stop the peristalsis. We need more time with this food. You, it's The bacteria is eating away at it. Um, bacteria have all these these. Uh, outcomes from them, both good and bad bacteria, good bacteria um, can actually overgrow and and they will then still create problems. And so there's all these gases that are put off when they overeat and all this stuff. And that's where you can get that bloating and gas and really bad smelling gas. And because you have low stomach acid, the food was not digested. It's just like eating raw meat. It's not good for your bacteria um, to have not properly digested, whether it's a carrot or a, or whatever. And so, um, that is, that's another thing. If you're someone who like, oh, I can't eat raw foods, but I can eat cooked foods. That's because the cooked food cooking, it has done some of the process. And, uh, likely if you have a hard, harder time eating raw foods, like raw veggies, um, raw fruit, things like that, it is much more likely that you have a digestive enzyme problem, stomach acid, bile, things like that. And so low stomach acid, that's, and same with bile, that's why you can predispose yourself to SIBO. The whole system gets slowed down. The peristalsis really shuts off. Um, And then the bacteria overgrow because they are overeating on this food that it's just, they're just doing their job. They're not like, oh gosh, I guess we shouldn't do this. (laughs) They're just eating what they're given. Um, And then it actually creates all this inflammation that damages the gut lining, predisposes you to leaky gut. That's also not great. Um, It's just a whole cyclical process. And so with SIBO, um, you want to make sure you have good stomach acid production. If you don't, and this is the number one thing, I get get a client, they said, I've, I've had SIBO or I've gotten it again or I'm suspicious I have it and I've worked with someone else and we did a test and confirmed I don't have it or confirmed I do. Whatever they were saying, I go, did anyone check you for H. pylori? <laughs> 
I hope you guys have heard me talk about H. pylori in this podcast episode. If you're new, welcome. But um, you can also just just flip through some of our um, acid reflux pathogens. We have so many different podcast episodes where we mention H. pylori. And it's a bacteria hangs out in the stomach. It will deplete your stomach acid. It loves stomach acid. It eats it. It damages the gut lining so that it reduces stomach acid levels in general. Um H. pylori will really lower stomach acid. It's the first thing I want to, you should look for. Yeah, like if you've had recurring SIBO, you want to first really think about do I have low stomach acid and and there's baking soda test you can do. You can talk to your doctor, although I don't love the test they do for it. It's kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> they, they just have to do an endoscopy and like go grab some of your stomach <laughs> through a tube and, and test the stomach acid. I love the baking soda test. It's much easier. It's uh, We do it with all of our clients. It's one teaspoon of baking soda and about what six ounces of water first thing in the morning. And you just see how long it takes you to burp. You want to burp within two to three minutes. If it's faster than two to three minutes, you have high stomach acid. If it's lower, longer than two to three minutes, you have low stomach acid. And if it's like longer than five minutes slash never happens, you've got really low stomach acid. And so that is H. pylori. That is stomach acid. You don't want to use... If you've had any antacid use in the past or in the present, you've potentially set off a chain reaction where you stopped having enough stomach acid, then you actually become nutrient deficient and you need specific nutrients like zinc to create stomach acid, which is why we have the podcast episode on the magic power of zinc and reducing acid reflux. But... um. It, once you do that, once you don't have enough stomach acid and you actually can't even absorb certain nutrients like calcium and iron and then zinc, and zinc helps you make stomach acid and now you're just stuck. Well, you're not stuck. You actually can get unstuck. You're stuck though without – if you just keep eating quote-unquote healthy food and stay on a restricted diet, that is not enough to get your zinc levels. It's not even enough to get your zinc levels if you, if you take zinc because you want to A, make sure H. pylori isn't there and B, you want to then buffer your stomach acid artificially officially for a little while um, and see you want to make sure your zinc's actually at a good level. It's it's a, it's just a process. There's a protocol and we do it in our and we teach it in blood lab boot camp and we also do it with our clients when they work with us one to one. Um, and then more specifically on bile. So we now know and we talked about you do want to digest your food. It predisposes you to SIBO if you're not. Even if you don't specifically have SIBO, you're going to get a lot of those SIBO-esque uh, symptoms. It's definitely IBS esque symptoms of the bloating and the abdominal pain and just like quick feelings of fullness and really not feeling good when you eat like anything um, doesn't matter what crazy diet you've put yourself on or been put on like the low FODMAP and th those again you can tell that those would be band-aids because the low FODMAP doesn't get your peristalsis back the low FODMAP diet doesn't get your stomach acid back it's really a band-aid and it's not even healing anything most of the time unfortunately with our like really chronic clients it'll make you feel better temporarily because you're not giving yourself specific ingredients that make the bacteria go cray cray but they still don't have what they need, which is proper digestion through stomach acid and bile and good peristalsis. So with bile specifically, you're like, well, how does it stop, you know, producing? Well, a couple things. Number one, weak thyroid function. So I'm actually going to talk about this more in an upcoming episode, but uh, we need thyroid to stimulate our gallbladder and our liver to be functioning well. Um, and then even more interesting, the liver and thyroid health are closely inter 
interrelated because your liver, which we're going to talk a little bit more about, but it converts one of your thyroid hormones into another thyroid hormone. It converts a weaker thyroid T4 into your stronger thyroid hormone T3. Um, and so if your liver is actually congested, congested, liver also creates bile. So liver problems are going to cause low bile production, which means the gallbladder is then is like, it's not going to have as much juice in it, both to give you when you eat, but then also it's more likely to become stagnant and you're more likely to get things like gallstones. So, um, also just like gallbladder removal, super common amongst our clients. Um, and they also have hormone problems and they have skin problems and they have pain problems and they have gut problems. And then the doctor just says, Oh, you got your gallbladder is like super inflamed. We have to take it out. And there's actually a point where you want it out because it's dangerous to have it in. But there's also a point where you don't have to take it out quite yet. You could actually try and rehab that gallbladder, uh, via, a holistic protocol that looks at liver and thyroid and digestion and all sorts of stuff. And so you want good bile production. Uh, thyroid needs to be checked. And this is not just a matter. And please listen. Hang on to next week. Like subscribe if you haven't. We're going to be talking about thyroid next week and how does thyroid become dysfunctional and why you want to be able to read your own thyroid panel. Uh, a <laughs> hint, it empowers you. Um, and a second hint, your doctor's probably doing it wrong. Um, not because we dislike doctors, but because we're seeing that pattern. Um, but what's happening is, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm distracting myself from my notes because I'm kind of going off in this, this rabbit hole of thyroid, which we're going to talk about more next week. But you want your thyroid to be working so that you can actually cue your body to create bile. Um, with when it comes to liver congestion, there's a lot of symptoms of this. And remind as a reminder, liver congestion, it's not a diagnosis. It is a description of a of a kind of scenario where the liver's not functioning at its utmost level. It's not cirrhosis, like it's not like this like really intense thing. Um, but it's definitely not working optimally. And if you have liver congestion, not only are you gonna struggle making bile, but you're also gonna have problems with things like estrogen dominance because bile helps actually get estrogen out of the body. That's going to lead to things like PMS and painful periods and tender breasts and irritability and mood swings. You're going to have acne, eczema, rashes, headaches, joint pain, muscular pain, stiffness, foggy headedness, mood instability. I already kind of mentioned that, but um, liver is involved in so much sinusitis. And so I would encourage you listen to the gut skin connection and the gut, the gut sinus connection podcast episodes already mentioned if you want to hear a little bit more about liver. But we talk about liver and blood lab boot camp. We talk about it in depth. We have a whole video on liver and all the things it impacts and how to holistically both address it, like uh, evaluate it, like, ooh, do I have a liver thing going on? Um, how we see it in blood chemistry so that you can look at that blood work that your doctor's ordered and then be like, oh, it actually showing up. And I, I cannot say how many times I have a client come to me and say, um, my doctor said my liver um, markers were high. And I'm like, well, of course they are. They're like, you have a liver thing going on. I'm like, what did your doctor say about that? They're like, oh, nothing. We just need to keep an eye on them. Like, let's reverse that sucker. Like, because your body is screaming, I would love some help. There's some things being connected to my symptoms. Yes, this is why I'm bloating and and having problems with energy and sleep. It's all in my liver. Uh, <laughs> and so your liver's just singing a little song and no one's listening. And so uh, 
you want to, if liver's congested, you won't make bile, you won't break down food, you'll be predisposed to SIBO. Other fun thing is once you've had SIBO or any other pathogen, parasites, H. pylori, um, et cetera, or any other toxin, heavy metals, already mentioned mercury, we have lots of clients who get aluminum, Um, problems in their body. Um, When you've had these things, then your liver gets overloaded and then you're now stuck in a cycle until liver's healed. It's not enough to kill the SIBO. You have to heal the entire problem. And that's why people are having 50% recurrence rates because they're it's like a f- house that's on fire that you then put out the fire, which is good. Don't let the house stay on fire. You put it out by with antibiotics or with herbs or however you put out the fire, which is that bacterial or parasite or whatever it is that's going on. But then you have all this fire damage in the house. And that takes a way longer than just than just putting out the fire. The firefighters hopefully will put out the fire in a few hours at most. Um, but it takes days and weeks and sometimes months to mitigate fire damage, to replace your carpet and your wall and your electric, like all the electrical lines are often melted and haywired and your lights and, and just like, you know, putting up, painting everything again and, and making sure there's no smoke damage and all this stuff going on. And so, um, that's actually what's going on. And that's why you don't feel good even after you've killed something like SIBO or a parasite, uh, whether it's through conventional means or even more integrative holistic means, because you want to make sure whoever you're working with tells you has next steps for you. And so we talk about that in Blood Lab Bootcamp. That's what really makes Blood Lab Bootcamp way more than just, oh, I I don't know, like I know what calcium means now. It's like, or I know what the functional range for calcium is, which is actually super important. And if you don't know what I mean by functional range, you can check out our episode, Six Reasons Your Doctor is Reading Your Labs Wrong, uh, which we'll link in the show notes. And I talk about the difference between a standard range and a functional range, which has to do with like if they see a marker as high, low, or normal. Um, this is so important. It's all part of the big picture. And so when you are able to read your own blood chemistry, you're empowered. You actually can say, you know, you don't have to wait for the right doctor or the the person who's going to fix you or heal you. You can actually say, I I actually know what I'm looking for. I want someone to partner with me who can maybe get access to certain labs for me or or give me out of the box ideas. Who knows a deeper level, but you want to come to the you want to come to the playing field with some education. Just like when you're buying a car, you don't want to like come and be like, "I know nothing about cars. I don't even know what, you know, gas what the accelerator is." Like you come with some knowledge and you also come with an understanding of what price range it's going to take to get a car that's five years old versus 10 years old has, you know, 5,000 miles on it or 500,000 miles on it. Like you want to know all these things, at least vaguely, at least vaguely, if not a little bit more in depth, which is what it would look like to partner with a health practitioner who you can say, I know enough about this. I know enough about this blood chemistry that I can tell you know more or that you know an adequate amount or whatever to get me to the next place. And that you yourself also have skills that you say can say, I don't need you know every moment of the day another health practitioner to guide myself, not guessing, but actually knowing from a test what's going on. And that's why I created Blood Lab Boot Camp. One last thing on bile production. We have a huge problem with uh, with something that is very common and could be a hot topic to say, um, 
but that causes bile production problems, and that is the birth control pill. And I'm going to leave a link in the show notes by Dr. Jolene Brighton, who's a naturopathic doctor. She's written a whole book on post-birth control syndrome and has done some phenomenal research on uh, just birth control and the pill and and how it's negatively affecting women's health. But she has a whole uh, article that basically reinforces anything that I could say on this podcast episode right now about the pill causing gallbladder problems. But basically, the pill slows down the gallbladder. It causes it to function less. Um, I even found some research that supports it. Um, there's not a ton out there that I could find like just from a quick Google search, but it's it's fascinating. There's certain types of um that of pills that they've even found are worse than others and totally correlate. There was one art, there was one research paper I found that looked at two million cases of um, of people using birth control. It was actually through just like using databases more so. Um, they found all these people who'd use birth control and then were able to access their health history. It actually was kind of freaky. I was like, what database has all this information? But um then it said that they looked at all the all the women who then needed a gallbladder removal after starting birth control. And the average number of days that the women who did get a gallbladder removal, and it was 30% of women who were on these, who was on this specific type of birth control that they were looking at, which was actually the birth control Yaz and Yasmin. Um that birth control, they were they were looking at 30% of women who were on it ended up needing a gallbladder removal. And the average number of days they needed a gallbladder removal after starting Yaz was 330 days. I was like, that's less than a year. That's not even fair, man. So uh, pretty crazy. Super interesting. I would... If you want to know like some more details on gallbladder problems and the birth control pill, um, check out the show link in the show notes. But if you're just happy taking my word for it and slash just like being like, wow, that's horrible and fascinating, um, the pill does lower and slow down bile production. So, um, and everything that she says in that article is I 100% support. I like read through it deeply. I love her action steps at the bottom of like things you can do next if you're if you think you have you know a gallbladder problem or know you have a gallbladder problem um and that's all again related to SIBO so all that being said weakened dysfunctional peristalsis low stomach acid and bile production those are the two big things that I'm looking for when someone comes in and you know if they say the word SIBO out of their mouth and they're suspicious or they know they have it all that jazz we really want to be thinking about that so I want to encourage y'all and I want to invite y'all right now to consider taking blood lab boot camp because it is going to completely change how you can engage with your own body, your own labs. Like it won't be so frustrating of like, what did my doctor just order? And are, is my doctor like doing the right thing? I just find so many of my clients and so many of the, just my friends, the women I talk to and myself prior to having any of this knowledge, um, you kind of have to decide if a doctor's good by trial and error. You have to give the doctor enough time. You're with them for six months or a year. And then you're like, I guess I don't feel any better. I'm like, you just took, you just had to wait six months to a year to just find out nothing's improved. What if you could meet with a doctor in an hour or over a phone call or whatever it is, and you could evaluate them and say, what do you, what's your theory on thyroid? And when you check thyroid, do you look for all these things or 
what's your theory on, you know, SIBO and what do you, what do you know about SIBO? And, and you can like really dig in and, and, and use all the information we have in blood lab bootcamp. What do you address liver congestion? How do you address liver congestion? How do you evaluate liver congestion? And if the doctor just like really throws you off and is like, this is stupid, it doesn't exist. Like you just want to know, you don't want to work with them. If you at least somewhat agree with anything that you've been listening to and, and that it resonates. And, and I hope it does because our clients actually get better, which we are not seeing with many of our clients after they've worked with the practitioners they have in the past. So there are good practitioners. There are also bad ones. And taking blood lab bootcamp actually equips you not only to have the tools yourself to help heal yourself, but also to evaluate others and who you want to partner with. Are they someone you want to even give your trust to, give your time to, give your money to before you start working with them? All right, guys. Well, if you want to do Blood Lab Bootcamp. It is being released January 5th in the new year. New year, new you. It is going to equip you and give you everything you need so that you can walk into 2022 educated and know what next steps you want to take in your health. You don't have to guess, you know, do I have this going on? Do I have that going on? You will see it directly in your blood work and have a good idea of what the next steps you want to take. If you want to be a part of that next cohort of students taking Blood Lab Bootcamp, then sign up for our waitlist. We have a link in the show notes. It's Better Belly Therapies dot com slash blood and i know blood but y'all remember that blood betterbellytherapies.com slash blood and you join the wait list so that we can be a part of you i can help you join jump on our live calls where you can get evaluations and feedback on your analysis your blood work and get an idea of what steps you can take next so that you're not flailing in your health anymore you have a solid idea of what steps you want to take well, guys, I hope that you did under uh, enjoy today's episode, and I really enjoyed talking to you guys about SIBO. If you are ready for more amazing content, you want to learn more about thyroid, that's going to be next episode, and we have even more content that is amazing coming in after that. So subscribe so you never miss a beat. And I would love to connect with you on our Instagram. We're having more and more conversations on there and extra content that we don't have on the podcast. So head over to at Better Belly Therapies uh, at, in Instagram and follow us and say hi and ask a question. I would love to talk with you guys there. And even here, is there a podcast episode you want to know about and a topic you want to hear about? Other ways that you can support us is by leaving a rating and a review on this podcast and just letting people know it's been helpful to you and that helps other people find this podcast as well. And lastly, just a reminder, our motto about health and healing Miracles are immediate, but healing takes time.